Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to the March 2022 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 287, we visit with David Rudolph, author of American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. David draws from his years of experience as a defense attorney in the American criminal legal system to shed light on the misconduct that exists at all levels of law enforcement and the tragic consequences that follow in its wake. The book includes new details from the Michael Peterson trial made famous in Netflix's The Staircase and takes the reader inside crime scenes to examine forensic evidence left by perpetrators, revisits unsolved murders to detail how and why the true culprits were never prosecuted, reveals how confirmation bias leads police and prosecutors to employ tactics that make wrongful arrests and prosecutions more likely, and exposes how poverty and racism fundamentally distort the system. Kirk's Review says that American Injustice is a stellar and often shocking report on a broken criminal justice system. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. A few quick things to know about the podcast. Uh, You can listen to the podcast wherever you like to get your podcast on all major podcast platforms, but you can also get more at charlottereaderspodcast.com. At our website there, you can get show notes on each episode where we share information about uh, the authors who appear on the show. There's a guest list that shows all the authors with links to their episodes. There is a community blog where authors who've appeared on the show or who've submitted to the podcast can share their wisdom and knowledge about writing and book recommendations. And then we have a community vlog where we do some Facebook live interviews. Uh, If you like video, check that out. And then there's the book report you can sign up for uh, at the podcast website. That's where we share on a monthly basis information about the podcast, what's happening, what's coming. And uh, hey, we won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And if you like uh, audiobooks, check out Libro.fm. We have an affiliation with them because they support independent bookstores. And when you sign up, if you use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you're going to get a free audiobook. On the Landis Wade front, check out LandisWade.com. That's where you can find out more about uh, me and my writing. I also have a blog there where I I write about uh, what I've learned uh, from authors and learned about the writing process. It's called Wade Scripts. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for there, uh, the Landis Wade Author Newsletter. And a shameless plug here uh, from the other sponsor of the podcast, uh, that's me. I have a novel. Uh, It's out on ebook now. It's coming out in print uh, on April the 5th. Uh, It's called Deadly Declarations, uh, and it's about an unlikely trio of retirees who set out to solve the mystery of the supposed Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. That is, if they don't die trying. Let's get to the episode. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Landis. I appreciate your having me. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thanks. 
Yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, before we talk about uh, your arc from young lawyer to preeminent trial lawyer to now a published author, I'd like to ask a question about the future of the criminal justice system, because in this book, American Injustice, you go to the underbelly of the system. Uh, you, you disclose all these problems that exist in the system. And so my question is, in, in spite of everything that you reveal, is there hope that the kinds of problems you reveal in this book will go away at some point? Or because these problems, as you demonstrate in the book, depend so much on the honesty and integrity and ethical behavior of humans who we know are imperfect, will these problems always be with us? Well, I think the short answer is the problems will always uh, be around the corner. And the question is whether or not uh, we can minimize those problems to the extent uh, that we don't eliminate wrongful convictions because it is a human system, uh, but we minimize those as much as we possibly can. And that's not being done right now. Yeah. And uh, a little bit about you. You are now a well-known trial lawyer in the country. You specialize in these high-profile and complex criminal civil cases. But at one time, David, you had a decision to make. As you say in your book, you're fresh out of law school. You turned down a federal courtship. You declined work at a big Wall Street firm. And you took a job in the Legal Aid Society's Criminal Defense Division in the South Bronx of New York, making $11,000 a year, 13000 if you passed the bar. And you gave up a, a, lot, a lot of opportunities there and money. So a two-part two question, why'd you make that choice? And did you have any idea at the time that that choice, starting at that level, would lead to the level you're at now and what you've experienced as a trial lawyer? Well, the answer to the second question is really easy. No, <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, but as to why I made the choice, you know, uh, it was a gut thing. It was it was instinct. You know, I had this offer to clerk for a very prominent federal district judge who had been a famous prosecutor in New Jersey, Herb Stern. Uh, he had just gone on the bench. I was going to be his first clerk. Uh, he wanted me to do a two year commitment to be a clerk. Um, and uh, I just wasn't willing to do that. Uh, I wanted to get uh, into the fray more quickly. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was willing to do one year, but I wasn't willing to do two years and he wasn't willing to do one year. And I remember making the decision to say, well, then I'm sorry, but I'm going to do something else. Uh, and it was like a, a giant uh, uh, boulder got lifted off me, you know, because I was so anxious about what I should do. Um, and I just decided I wanted to be a public defender at that point in my life. Uh, and, uh, and so I made the decision going to wall street was never really, a, uh, an option for me. Uh, uh, that, that just wasn't the, the kind of law I was interested in at all. Uh, but the clerkship was a much more difficult decision. And, you know, of course my parents <laughs> were telling me how I was giving up all kinds of options by not, by not, uh, not taking the clerkship, you know, that was the route to, uh, you know, many, many more opportunities than being a lowly public defender in the South Bronx. Um, uh, but thankfully, I didn't listen to them. So was that, were you drawn to that in part because you wanted to experience the excitement of being in court? Or did you have this sort of, uh, from the very beginning, this idea of wanting to help those who are up against a system that was against them or a little bit of both? Probably a little bit of both. I, I will tell you that, uh, uh, my third year in law school at NYU, I was in a clinical program. Uh, 
where I represented uh, people charged with misdemeanors. Uh, and I actually had a jury trial uh, uh, in that program. Uh, it was a six-person jury trial. And my client was charged with some sort of an assault. I can't remember the details. Uh, but uh, we tried the case. Uh, and, uh, and I actually won the case. I got a not guilty. Uh, and I think it was at that moment when I heard not guilty uh, <laughs> that the decision was made about what I was going to do with my career. Well, they say in, in fly fishing that the tug is the drug. I suppose the non-guilty is the drug, right? Oh, ab absolutely. It's just, uh, it, was a, it was a mind-boggling experience. <laughs> so you said uh, in your book uh, on TV and speeches and everything that there's a difference between not guilty and innocent. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, in, in Scotland, uh, they have three verdicts. Uh, they have uh, guilty, not guilty, and not proven which is essentially the equivalent of not guilty. But, you know, uh, that's really not proven is really what the verdict ought to be, because the whole issue is, has the prosecution carried its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? And I think, um, you know, for a jury to say uh, uh, not guilty, uh, it sort of implies that the person didn't do it. You know, he's not guilty. Um, and that's not what the verdict really is supposed to be representative of. Uh, so, you know, not guilty uh, or not proven uh, is my preference, just means that the state or the federal government has not given the jury sufficient proof uh, to eliminate the presumption of innocence and to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That's it. And and uh, and that's very different than saying that somebody is innocent or proven innocent. Yeah. And throughout your book, uh, you, you harp on the fact that you know, the burden is on the prosecution, as it should be, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt because you're taking away people's, uh, you know, freedom, that uh, you're impacting their lives. So the burden rests with them. Um, talking about American injustice for just a moment here, and we're going to get more into it. Do you see this book? Um, written many years later from the time you made that first decision uh, coming out of law school as to what you're going to do, as sort of an extension of everything you've been doing over your career um, to kind of pull together all these thoughts that have been in your head circulating around about what's not working with the American justice system? Well, it, it, certainly, it certainly is uh, the culmination of a lot of years of experience. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and it, it really re represents my decision to to try to speak to as broad an audience as I possibly can. You know, I've spent my life, uh, professional life, talking to either, you know, a single prosecutor or a single judge or a group of 12 people, jurors. Uh, and, you know, when uh, you left out the reporters, David. Well, yeah, I did. Uh, yes, uh, that's true. But uh, usually more than one reporter, there would be a gaggle around the courthouse. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it struck me that uh, especially uh, after the staircase, the, the Netflix documentary came out and I was able to speak really all around the world about uh, uh, these issues uh, and, you know, sometimes had. 500 or a thousand people in an audience, um, you know, listening. And it just struck me that, uh, that was so much more important at this stage of my career in life to be able to, uh, 
give normal everyday people the perspective that I had gained uh, that, you know, when, when those tours ended, uh, it was, it was pretty clear to me that writing a book would be the best avenue for me to try to continue that, that effort. And so that's what I did. Yeah. So, um, how hard was it to go from doing the things you do on a regular basis to sitting down to write a book? Uh, it was challenging. Uh, you know, thankfully, uh, uh, my, uh, my partner in the law firm, uh, Philip Lewis, uh, is a talented author in his own right. Yeah. Uh, we've had, we've had him on the podcast. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, as I say in the book, um, uh, in the acknowledgments, uh, Philip joined our law firm, uh, in order to help other people, uh, uh, you know, uh, secure their rights. And, and the person he ended up helping the most was me. Uh, and, uh, he just, he dug it, you know, I had all the case files, uh, but he dug into them, uh, you know, uh, did, did some independent research, uh, you know, helped me draft sections. Uh, we have very different styles. Um, he tends to uh, describe things in, in exquisite detail, uh, and I tend to be much sparser. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, we, uh, we complimented each other in that way. And so that, that made it a lot easier to be honest, Landis. Yeah. Philip Lewis, author of the Bearfields, who was on our podcast. He's another lawyer turned author, but still, you know, paying the bills, practicing law. Now, uh, you're not literary fiction, but your, your book does move. It has good pace. And I, I was have to say that, you know, David I have to do this because, uh, you know, when I was emailing you and you said, well, look, Landis, I think it was a response to some question I asked, I'm not a, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a writer. And I said, David, wait a minute. You just wrote a book, man. It's like 300 and some pages. Uh, so here's the question. How many books do you have to sell? How many kind of reviews do you have to get before you're going to get over the imposter syndrome and say, I am a writer? Well, you know, Landis, I'm not over the imposter syndrome <laughs> for being a lawyer. <laughs> so so I, I don't know that that's ever going to happen. Okay. Being a writer, you know, uh, Imposter syndrome is is a is a really it's a really heavy burden, uh, and uh, uh, you know when I was a professor, I thought I was an imposter professor. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. Fair enough, but you're also a podcaster too. You've got a criminal justice podcast called Abuse of Power, so you're dabbling. And that too. Tell us about the podcast. Yeah. And, and that's, again, uh, you know, that I do with with uh, my law partner and spouse, Sonia Pfeiffer, who is an extremely talented person in her own right in many different fields. Uh, and um, again, you know, we both do the same kind of law. We're both interested in the same social justice issues. She has a, a gallery, uh, the Elder Gallery of Contemporary Art in, in Charlotte. Uh, that is sort of dedicated to social justice issues as as well as to fine art. Uh, and so uh, we had the opportunity to start this podcast. It won uh, something that I didn't know existed, which is called a Webby Award, uh, sort of like uh, the, uh, I guess, the Oscars or the, you know, whatever the TV shows get, Emmys uh, for uh, for web uh, podcasts. Uh, and uh, And it's another way of reaching people. It's another way of educating. And so uh, in, in, uh, in the first season, we, we covered 10 or 11 different cases, where all of which had abuses of power. Um, this season, Audible bought the podcast, uh, and uh, we're focusing in on 
a single case uh, uh, out of Miami. And then we're also going to focus in on, a, on another case uh, next season. Uh, and, and it's all part of the same effort. It's all part of expanding the reach of what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's great. And I'm going to guess that uh, Sonia's in charge of technology, right? <laughs> Sonia's in charge of most everything. <laughs> okay. Given our starts and stops here at the beginning of the podcast, yeah, she's in charge of technology. All right. Well, look, I should let, before we get dive deeper here, I want to let listeners know that you and I are going to jump over to Patreon after this is over. We're going to record an episode that uh, I'm calling sort of behind the scenes of making the staircase because I was really curious uh, about how a lawyer can try a case with a film crew following around. So listeners, you can go over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash forward slash Charlotte's podcast. Join for as little as $5 a month. Support the podcast. Get 120 exclusive episodes plus this special uh, interview uh, about the uh, Netflix uh, special, The Staircase, which I listened to recently and I've got a lot of questions about. Okay, David, first impressions here. I'm looking at the book, American Injustice. We've got a dark uh, cover, which is sort of, foreboding, almost, uh, you know, there's no way out uh, kind of thing. And then you've got the bright red inside stories from the underbelly of the criminal justice system. It's kind of a blood red color. But, you know, just in the shadows there is Lady Justice holding the scales with the, you know, blindfold around her eyes. Is there any symbolism to the fact that she's in a shadowed state here? Yeah, no, I think I think there is. Um you know, I actually wanted it to be sort of a stormy scene. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and if you look at the podcast, uh, at least from last year, the uh, the banner uh, is, in fact, Lady Justice in a sort of a thunderstorm, uh, lightning storm. Uh, and, and that was very much an intentional choice um, because I do think, uh, you know, justice is under attack. I think it is under a cloud, if you will. Uh, I think the rule of law all over, not just in the United States, is under attack. So, sure, I mean, I, I don't think it would have been appropriate to have uh, this book with a uh, a bunch of uh, roses uh, <laughs> climbing up a, a trellis, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very much an intentional choice. Good point. Good point. Well, this is a good segue then into what we do on Charlotte's podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. I'm going to have you read. A little section from the early in the book that uh, kind of gives, uh, you know, a good overview of some of the uh, kind of stories uh, you're discussing in the book. It's uh, starting early in the book. Uh, I think it's around page two. I think uh, anytime you're ready, just uh, take it away. Willfully concealing evidence of a defendant's innocence is an egregious abuse of police power that comes with life altering and sometimes life ending consequences. Incredibly, this type of misconduct by law enforcement doesn't just happen in rare and isolated cases. It is common knowledge among criminal defense attorneys that police and prosecutors routinely engage in a variety of abuses of power to obtain convictions, and it happens in every jurisdiction in the United States. Such misconduct by police and prosecutors takes several forms. The first involves the police concealing evidence of the defendant's innocence, as investigators did in the Ed Friedland case. Another common type of misconduct occurs when the police use highly suggestive procedures to make an eyewitness identification of a suspect more likely, which in turn has the effect of contaminating an eyewitness's true recollection of the crime and the perpetrator. 
Yet another occurs when the police fabricate or plant evidence for the purpose of implicating a suspect in a crime. A related abuse of power occurs when the police use interrogation tactics that coerce innocent defendants into giving false confessions and encourage incentivized witnesses, such as jailhouse snitches, to give false testimony against an accused. Finally, in cases where forensic evidence exists and is relevant, investigators often resort to highly unreliable forensic disciplines, such as bite mark and microscopic hair comparison analysis, to implicate suspects. Meanwhile, prosecutors routinely rely on unreliable evidence procured through police misconduct to obtain convictions or force plea deals with defendants. Ironically, law enforcement misconduct is most often seen in cases in which there is a paucity of truly incriminating evidence, usually because the suspect in such cases is in fact innocent. Yet a strong belief by the police in their own ability to, quote, know what really happened, coupled with the effects of confirmation bias and a desire not to let the perpetrator beat the charge, lead investigators astray and result in abuses of power that send innocent people to prison. It's not that the police set out to frame someone they know to be innocent, although that sometimes happens, if rarely. More often, the police feel the need to create or find the evidence necessary to convict where none exists. Those who work to correct injustices of this type have a name for it, noble cause corruption. Such abuses of power have resulted in the wrongful prosecutions of thousands of innocent people. Countless innocent people have likewise been imprisoned and many have been sent to death row. Tragically, some of those sentenced to death were executed for crimes they likely did not commit. Racial minorities have disproportionately been the target and victims of police and prosecutorial misconduct, particularly in the American South, where an enduring, le <clears throat> where an enduring legacy of racial prejudice has long plagued the criminal justice system. Just in the past 30 years, due in part to advancing scientific technologies, such as DNA testing, more than 2,800 innocent people serving prison sentences have been exonerated and freed from the shackles of confinement, their combined jail sentences adding up to more than 25,000 years of prison time. This number, however, represents only a small fraction of the number of persons wrongfully convicted over the same period, and it does not reflect those who were acquitted or granted a dismissal of the charges after being wrongfully arrested. David, some of these statistics are mind-boggling, this idea of, you know, um, 25,000 years of prison time, and it doesn't even include some of the others involved here, um, which raises a question about the Innocence Project, which has taken hold nationally and in some states. How important has that effort been toward addressing the kinds of issues that you talk about in your book? Well, to be, to be blunt, it has been absolutely essential. Uh, but for the work of Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld in creating the original Innocence Project in New York, uh, and, and then uh, the duplication of that effort, uh, really in law schools all over the country, you know, here in North Carolina, there's an Innocence Project at Duke, there's one at Wake Forest, there's one at UNC, um, and, and they are responsible for exonerating a number of people here in North Carolina, let alone nationwide. Uh, so, you know, the problem is that, that someone gets convicted, they're in prison, 
They have no resources for the most part. Uh, and, uh, and they can't really even contact a lawyer, uh, let alone pay a lawyer. So, you know, they've got to find somebody uh, who's willing to take on uh, an often impossible task, uh, you know, read through hundreds of pages of, of documents uh, and uh, try to evaluate first whether the case even has a chance of success uh, and then uh, figure out whether there's evidence uh, that would support the application. So it, it's a daunting task, and, and most private lawyers uh, simply don't have the time or the resources to be able to do that and feed their families. Uh, and so the law schools have, have filled a, a, an incredibly important uh, gap uh, in, in this area of the law. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I think the vast majority of these exonerations uh, would not have happened but for those uh, innocence projects. Yeah, and one of the things uh, you mentioned uh, early in the reading you just did, you mentioned uh, <clears throat> Ed Fredlin, um, and you talk about the uh, Kim Thomas murder in your book, which happened right here in Charlotte. Uh, her husband, Dr. Ed Fredlin, was charged with the murder, and you talk about how he was the usual suspect. You know, the husband did it, and, and how that drove the police not only to make assumptions, but to ignore evidence involving one Marion Gales. And you say, if you wanted to find an example of how confirmation bias and tunnel vision led to wrongful arrests and convictions, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with a more vivid and compelling example than this case. How so? <laughs> well, you know, uh, as you may recall, I actually represented Ed uh, back when he was indicted. Uh, and, you know, there was enorm an enormous amount of evidence pointing towards a handyman who had worked at their house uh, who had a lengthy history of criminal acts, who had a drug habit, uh, and who Kim Thomas's best friends both thought was the guy who did it. They were both suspicious of him. Uh, and then it turned out that the police had developed evidence that, that Marion Gales had been on that street, on Churchill uh, that night, uh, going up to people's doors, looking for money, uh, and, uh, you know, they, they developed the fact that his brother-in-law called the police, uh, and said that, uh, he thought that, uh, that Marion Gales had killed that lady referring to Kim. I mean, it, it went on and on and on, uh, and, and the police were, were sort of following those leads until they found out that Ed had had an affair with a nurse. The affair was over. Uh, but they found out about that. And they found out that at some point he had consulted with a divorce lawyer uh, about uh, divorcing Kim. And that was it. You know, at, at that point, uh, all of a sudden he hadn't acted correctly at the scene. He hadn't run up to the body. He wasn't emotional enough uh, and on and on and on. There was no evidence implicating Ed. He had been at the hospitals uh, from 8 a.m. in the morning until 10 p.m. at night when he came home and found Kim Thomas murdered. So, you know, talk about an alibi. He, 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 he had the best alibi that anyone could possibly have documented in hospitals. Uh, yet once they found out that he had had this affair, they ignored all of that evidence against Gales and Worse than that, 
they kept it from the prosecutors. They didn't turn it over to Peter Gilchrist and his staff. Uh, and then, and then, because Peter Gilchrist would not indict Ed without more proof, because there wasn't any proof, they went and got a medical examiner from New York to testify falsely uh, that Kim Thomas's time of death was before 8 a.m., because that was the only way that, that they could convict Ed. Uh, and, uh, you know, we ended up having a hearing. Uh, the judge found that that uh, expert opinion was not based on any kind of science, was uh, unreliable, uh, refused to allow it into evidence. Uh, we found out through hearings in front of the judge all about the exculpatory evidence that had been hidden from the prosecutors. The prosecutor came out of a conference with the judge having looked at this stuff, and he said, you're not going to believe what I just read. And, and uh, you know, as a result of all of that, the charges against Ed were dismissed. But let's talk about what actually happened. Ed was subjected to four years of innuendo and, and leaks uh, and, and allegations uh, that ruined his medical career. Uh, even after he was, uh, the charges were dismissed, many people in Charlotte still thought that he was guilty. Uh, the police never went after Marion Gales, despite all the evidence they had against him. Uh, Ed had to move to another state uh, to restart his medical practice. Uh, and all of that, all of it stemmed from the fact that they had a confirmation bias. They believed that Ed did it because he had an affair at one point and he didn't, quote, act right. And that's, I mean, it is a poster child for confirmation bias because there was zero evidence that Ed did this, zero. Um, so uh, that's, that's the best example I could ever imagine. Yeah, and listen, this is a good example of the kind of stories that you're going to get when you read this book, American Injustice. That theme you just talked about, uh, David, also, though we're going to spend more time talking about the staircase in a separate episode on Patreon, it kind of the same idea spilled over into the Michael Peterson case because it had to do with uh, the fact that he was gay. Uh, and so, you know, how much over time have people been convicted uh, on things they've done that had nothing to do with murdering people? You know, things that the, the public can't get their head around. Maybe they're not they don't fit in. Maybe they're, you know, they're they're in the other crowd. And the prosecutors use that, use their power to put that thing in front of the jury. When I think that standard, although I'm a, three years away from the law, what is it? The, it's overly prejudicial, outweighs yeah. the probative yeah. value kind of the prejudicial thing. impact outweighs the probative value. Uh, right. Yeah. No. Uh, look, pro it's an adversary system. And, and unfortunately, I think a number of prosecutors take that to an extreme because what they should be taught, and, and I think what, to his credit, Peter Gilchrist always believed, was that their job was to do justice. Uh, and, uh, you know, I might disagree with Peter about a number of things, another, a number of issues, but he always disclosed exculpatory evidence. Uh, and indeed, that's why the police kept all that Marion Gale stuff away from the DA's office, because they knew that that Peter's office would disclose it to us. Uh, and he always believed that it was OK 
to not charge somebody, to, to not prosecute if the evidence wasn't there. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's a majority view in this country. Um, and, and so, you know, again, it's, it's confirmation bias. Uh, prosecutors believe they have the right guy. And so if they need to bring in, uh, you know, some evidence that he's bisexual or, you know, some evidence that his wife's best friend died in Germany 23 years earlier, uh, heck, you know, we're just using it to get the right guy. And so you end up with this sort of uh, ends justifying the means mentality. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing you mentioned in this little reading was about uh, how sometimes the police contaminate the evidence or they contaminate a lineup. You have a story that kind of runs throughout American uh, injustice about a black man, Ray Finch. He's charged uh, and convicted of the murder of Shadow Holloman. This is in Wilson, North Carolina. Little did the jury know at the time that there's a lot of corruption going on in Wilson County at the time. And this guy was kind of set up, but the lineup itself, uh, that might've convicted him in and of itself. Right. Well, what happened was the lineup, uh, you know, the, the witness, uh, really didn't get any view of the faces of the perpetrators at all. Uh, he, he could describe their clothing a little bit. Uh, and, uh, one of the things that he apparently told the sheriff's deputy who was in fact corrupt, who, in fact, the sheriff had was convicted of uh, of corruption in federal court uh, three years after Ray's trial. Uh, but uh, one of the things that uh, this witness told the sheriff's deputy uh, was that the man who had shot Shadow Holloman was wearing a three quarter length black coat. Now it was February, <laughs> and there were a lot of people in uh, in uh, Wilson, North Carolina who are walking around with three quarter length black coats. Um, but Ray was put into a lineup with six other people. Uh, he was the only person in that lineup wearing a three quarter length black coat. Nobody else in the lineup was wearing any coat at all. All right. And so, you know, they put the guy in front of the lineup and they said, do you see the guy who did this? Well, there's one guy with a with a three quarter length black coat. And, you know, sure enough, he picks out Ray. That was the evidence that convicted Ray Finch. And by the way, Ray Finch got out after 42 years of being imprisoned. He went in at the age of 40. He came out at the age of 82 uh, and he passed away uh, a week ago. Uh, after being out for less than three years. Uh, so uh, there's no there's no good ending to that particular story. Yeah, it's a terrible story. Um, but one that's important to be told, which you've done in this book along with many others, we've only have time for one more. And the reason I want to just have you talk about this a second is that uh, it, it may be, perhaps, I'm guessing here, that this story alone could be one of the reasons that you took the time and spent all the time to write this book, uh, you talk about the prosecutor being the most powerful person in the system and how they have immunity, even if they abuse their power. And this came to light most directly for you when you were well, uh, defending Wilbur Hobby, one time president of the North Carolina chapter of the AFL-CIO union. And at the time, the federal U.S. attorney was Samuel T. Curran, and he was he was hell bent on getting a conviction in this case to the point that and this is what really 
struck me and I thought, okay, maybe this is why David wrote the book. You know, he he indicted you, one of the lawyers representing the defendant, purely as a tactic. Uh, but at the time, you're a young lawyer, you're being indicted. And it had to do with, I think, as I recall, you had the grand jury gotten some testimony, given it to you. You gave it to your client to look at. He shared it. So he indicted you for sharing grand, which I think you explained in the book wasn't even a violation. But talk about that because it really hit home for you. Um, you're being indicted as a young lawyer uh, by a person who, when you finish the story, I think people will realize Samuel T. Curran not only had an agenda, but he wasn't following ethical principles in his own life. Well, let me let me give you a slight correction because he threatened to indict me. He hadn't actually indicted me. Okay. Well, he, that's that's still pretty. Oh no, it was it was it was every bit as as scary, uh, and and it had the same impact, which was to attempt to get us, myself, and Don Beskin, who was a law professor at Duke, uh, who was my co-counsel, uh, thrown off the case. Uh, that was his whole goal, was basically to hold that over our heads so that we couldn't represent Wilbur anymore uh, because he would be, quote, a witness against us because we had given him the grand jury transcripts. Uh, and so we were conflicted out of representing him. And so now they could convict uh, Wilbur Hobby much more easily. Uh, and it was it was incredibly frightening because Don and I uh, were young lawyers. We were both just uh, you know, we were both professors at our respective law schools, uh, and, and a, the prospect of an indictment would have totally torpedoed our careers, uh, you know, right before they started. Uh, and so I had a real taste of what Wilbur and, and all of my other clients went through psychologically when they were being prosecuted. And I think that gave me a sense of empathy that I probably never would have had otherwise. You know, it, it, it's, it's hard to replicate that feeling uh, when you're just, you know, listening to somebody talk about it as, as opposed to having experienced it yourself. Uh, and, uh, and thankfully, the federal judge uh, uh, called us into chambers and he said to Sam Curran, who, by the way, ended up later on being convicted of money laundering for a drug dealer, uh, but we won't even talk about that. Uh, in any event, he, he called us all into chambers and he, and he looked at Sam Curran. He said, listen, uh, either you indict these two lawyers and we'll try them next month, which is when we have the hobby case tried, set for trial, or you tell me you're not going to proceed against them and we'll try hobby. Your choice. Let me know tomorrow. Do you want to try Rudolph and Beskin next month or do you want to try hobby next month? You know, and I'm sitting there <laughs> wishing he hadn't put it quite that way to this prosecutor. Uh, but he obviously knew what he was doing. Uh, and and the prosecutor backed down and, and we ended up trying the hobby case. Yeah, I, I was just I, I was fascinated by that story as I'm reading it in the book, thinking about uh, what it would be like as a young lawyer. You're trying to develop your career, your teaching. You know, as you said, so many people believe, well, if this person has been indicted, they must have done it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, we could sit here and talk all day, but that's why there's a book. Uh, we don't have to. People can run out uh, and get it. And listeners, you can find more out about David at charlotterspodcast.com. we got show notes there with the uh, images of the book, him, links to uh, 
uh, his website. He is, in fact, a writer, even though he might not admit it sometimes. But <laughs> And uh, join us on, on Patreon. Uh, David, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on, on the podcast. Uh, and, and we ought to give a plug a plug to Park Road Books, which uh, which has ordered a bunch of these, uh, much to my delight. So uh, if, yeah. if, you're, uh, if you're able, you ought to go and buy it from Park Road Books uh, here in Charlotte. Absolutely. Our local independent bookstore, the oldest uh, independent bookstore in Charlotte. Uh, so check out Parker Books and get uh, get your copy of American Injustice. All right, David, uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Landis. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.